Have you made an honest review? Jump onto fifthwrist.com and read real takes by real owners about their watches. And of course, get involved and write about what's on your wrist. Fifthwrist.com is your independent space to talk watches. Hello and welcome back to the Robin the Regulator show on Fifth Wrist Radio. We've got, I'm joined again by my affable, best, best friend, <laughs> uh, co-host, the Watch Regulator. Hello, Alex. Good evening. Hello. That's very short and brief. Yeah. Good evening. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And we have a guest. I'm stop saying special, special guests because they're all special. No, You're not I, did, I, special I, I deliberately anymore. didn't say special. Oh, look, let me finish. It's going to feel bad. <laughs> I don't care if it feels bad. Anyway, we got Anthony here, commonly known as No BS, the No BS Watchmaker, uh, author of the book uh, 100 Plus No BS Watch Tips. And we're going to get Anthony's in based in New York, right? Um, yes, yes. How are you, Ray? Anyway? Welcome. God, good, man. No, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a, it's a huge honor. <laughs> it is a huge honor, actually. Yeah, as long as you're aware of that. <laughs> hey, you got to, you know. It's, it's, always, it's, it's very seldom you have, like, good watchmaking podcasts nowadays anyway. So true. They're so very true. rare. Yeah. Yes, as very, Moses very would rare. say, it's very rare. That was a great episode, actually. I saw, I saw the post on, on Instagram as well, so that's very, very, I listened. really good. I listened. good. It's nice when people come on and they, they've listened to it as well. Because sometimes yeah. I feel when people come on, I'm like, God, do they really know what they're letting themselves in for here? Uh, I feel I mean, a bit I, bad, but... He, I mean, he sounds like a cool guy, honestly. I mean, I even saw him post on your Instagram. You know, he's like, yeah, what yeah. excerpts yeah. you choose? You choose that excerpt, you know what I mean? But he seems like a cool guy, so yeah. I, I got that. Ed's a great guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hope he's listening. Hi, Ed, if he is. Um, I, I reached out a little while ago. Well, I was waiting for Alex to get his butt into gear and get your book, um, which he should have had years ago, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it's only been out like three years. <laughs> three years? <laughs> it's only been I, out for three years, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I actually need to give a shout out to Harry, the young guy I had working for me when I was in a, in a, in a retailer, the last retailer I worked at, who I think he ordered it for me. I'm not even sure if I ever paid for it, but um, Harry. Oh, that's nice. That book. Harry's a, he's a good guy. He was, um, because it's, I, I talked to him about it. I think I'd seen it somewhere or something, and it says, um, and it was for watch enthusiasts and salespeople. We were in a sales role, and he was a new guy in a sales role, very passionate about watches. But there was a lot of good stuff for him and, and the rest of us as well, the team um, in the boutique, basically. So uh, enjoyed going through there and um, having little chats about different different bits and pieces. And uh, now Alex has gone through and read the whole thing cover to cover, and it's all fresh in his mind. So I'll let him um, run with it and ask you what he wants to ask you. <laughs> Is that right, Alex? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Are we just? Oh, we're just getting straight into it. We're not doing what we do. We're not doing drink checks. Oh, and okay. Obviously, God, you get we're only we're approaching, <laughs> approaching one hundred episodes, and we still don't have a clue. You might. We might be. I'm, I'm not. I've only done. I think this is my fortieth, actually. Fortieth. Um, right. My fortieth. That's quite a lot. It's quite a few, but it doesn't mean I'm going to get any better at it. I usually get worse at stuff the longer I go. Generative type thing. Um, we'll be like, <laughs> we're three minutes in. Okay, we'll do we'll do we'll do a drink check then. You know, you're happy. That's why I employ you anyway to to, to, to make sure. Okay. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing what are you right, drinking, so. Rob? What am I drinking? I'm about to drink. Hang on, just gotta open it. <clears throat> a cold brewed mountain apple cider. Um, mm, mm, that yeah, sounds delicious. The, the fat, yeah, it, it it is actually. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to cut back on the beers a little bit. Um, from these podcasts, I'm becoming an alcoholic of these podcasts. <laughs> this is a minister alcoholic cider, but it's just a bit, it's not quite as strong. Um, I honestly find myself, when I go to the bottle shop or bottle or whatever you call it, I find myself looking for whatever the last thing Rob said, whether it be like an alcoholic ginger beer or a cider <laughs> or like I'm always, yeah, I'm very uh, easily influenced. By you're so easy. I was going to say, you're so easily influenced. Yeah. But that's good. That's fine. That's why I hang oh, around man. with you. When I when I did the podcast with Adam from Red Bar, I mean, I think Adam did like half a bottle of vodka oh, yeah. or something He's like next that. Level. <laughs> yeah, and we were drinking vodka the entire time. It was just like shooting the shit. So I mean, it's not, it, it's all good here. Apple cider, apple cider is nothing at this point. <laughs> it's not too bad. But I mean, five fifteen in the morning, you're not drinking vodka at the moment. Oh no, no, yeah, no. We're we're, we're twelve hours behind you guys, I believe, right over here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so yes. for me, I, it's just coffee. It's, it's I mean, coffee. it's five o'clock somewhere, you know. But exactly, uh, yeah, apple cider is a little too early for me at this point. Coffee, coffee's always good. Um, yeah, yeah. When you go to a New York 
bucket of coffee or something. Do you have, you, do you have short black or how do you have it? Uh, I mean, I, I usually just have it as a shot early in the morning. Okay. It's like, you know, that's good. I mean, I pour a packet of coffee and I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not like a coffee. I'm not a huge coffee, like expert or whatnot. I just get those coffee wine coffee bags. Yeah, I'm going to get roasted like, for this, but I just, yeah, I just pour, it's not a real it coffee in. then, is it? It's like, a yeah, I know. Exactly. Pot, pot I know. I know. I know. Oh, well. oh, well. Okay. And what are you drinking, Alex? I have, I'm trying to be a bit more sensible as well. now. like after last night, I had probably a few too, mar- too many margaritas. So I'm just back to my good old pint of wine. And I have a pint of Neil McGuigan series Cab Sav. And I like it because it has like a color changing label on it that tells you if the wine is at the right temperature Ooh. to drink. Oh, Which me of those well, like color changing t-shirts of, <laughs> of my youth, like the global hypercolor color changing yeah, right. t-shirts. That, oh, yeah. okay. Look on the cab sav. Okay, sorry, I, I I talked over top of you because you disappeared on my screen for a little while. Oh, but, sorry, Rob. But it could be my system. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I I apologize. Good. Um, oh, so you guys what are, are we so wearing? Civilized. Well, oh, no, we are <laughs> Wait for civilized. it. Wait yeah, for yeah. it. <laughs> uh, for me, well, I mean, it's it's five o'clock in the morning for me. I mean, I, I do have a JLC on the table next to me, a JLC reversal. But for me, right now at the moment, I'm not really wearing anything. Um, I mean, I could put it on for the sake of the podcast. You yeah, know, no, but, well, uh, that's okay. You can pretend you're wearing it. It's okay. It's okay. He's got some instant coffee, and he doesn't have a watch on. Do you guys get sick and tired of having a watch on? I don't know. Uh, no. No, no. I, I, I kind of feel naked if I don't have a watch on, to be honest. Uh, if I go out, uh, yeah, uh, from when I get up to when I get to That's bed, so I interesting. On. You know, for me, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm going to get roasted for this, especially since I'm a watchmaker or whatnot, but. I don't know. Ever since working on watches, you know, for the longest time, it's it, it feels like by the time work is over, the last thing I want to do is have a watch on. You know what I mean? Really? I, don't, I don't know the best. Yeah, it's it's, for, yeah, it's okay. very like I can go days without wearing a watch on my wrist and just feel completely comfortable. Um, and I get roasted a lot for this when I post about it on Instagram or whatnot. Well, most of the watchmakers I work with, they don't wear watches, and that was kind of a yeah an unusual. Or it wasn't. I guess it's not unusual, but it was a bit of a kind of startling revelation oh, for, sure, for me yeah. when they didn't wear. So I can totally understand when you have a a large fan base of watch enthusiasts uh, on Instagram <laughs> that they kind of get, yeah, that they give you a bit of a roasting. I think it's fair enough. Oh man, yeah, you <laughs> you deserve to be roasted, well roasted. What about you, Alex? I've got my new Seiko Tuna. Is that Tuna? Oh yeah. Like the, yeah, the solar fabric. thing that I got yesterday yeah. or the day before. Oh, okay. wow. Love it. Yeah. Really, I, really how do you feel it. about Seiko? You like Seiko? I do like Seiko. Yeah. I get, I kind of grew up with my dad always having a kind of couple of different Seikos. So I'm kind of used to seeing them around and I'm used to kind of associating them with quality for some reason. I don't know what it was. I think because my dad had some military issue RAF ones. He would always say, oh, like, this is a great watch. So, like, if it was kind of suitable for the military, it must be a great watch. So I guess in my mind, I grew up with Seiko being, like, a quality brand. Um, I never really thought about them as the kind of $50 range upwards. In my mind, they were always, like, a £1,000 watch. What about you, Rob? I'm wearing my old Snowflake, my old Tudor again. Um, but I, th- I think I'm, I'm, I'm starting to go back through my watches again from the start of the podcast. So I, I, and I've, there's, there's watches I still haven't found that I've put away. And I was trying to mix up and have something different every single podcast. I don't know if I'll do that for the next 50 podcasts, but not quite. But Because um, um, that's probably why we wear a lot of watches too, Anthony, is because we, we, we kind of – well, I'm a tragic collector, basically. And I have a kind of a, a few. I know Alex now, does as well. how many watches would you say you have in your collection? I don't know. And I've asked that many times. But it's it's dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens. Would you say over a hundred? No, I don't think so. No, no, no. I met this one guy who has over two hundred watches in his collection, and I know guys with three thousand. Oh so, my god! You know, yeah, there's guys out there. There's some pretty serious collectors out there. So I mean, yeah, but a couple hundred is already a decent amount. I, I see, but he, this guy has like a nice, beautiful setup, man. He has like built-in watch winders to his cabinets. He oh, has I'm envious of those built-in people. watch winders in his walls. Like, oh man, oh man, it's it's ridiculous. 
I think I've got about 20, but I worked with a guy who had, he said he had, he said he stopped counting when he got to a thousand, but he was just, he would just buy any old junk. Like it didn't yeah, matter. You just buy anything. Yeah. That's, I don't see the point. Expensive hobby, man. Yeah. Yeah. If you, no, I don't, don't, I'm not that. I did, I did stop counting, but it was only probably at 50. I don't know. I don't probably did a bit more than that, but, um, Anyway, yeah, this is an old 1968 snowflake, which kind of gets a bit of a bit of a bit of wear. Um, Tudor stuff, seven oh one six, I think it is. If you know the references, we don't. I don't, but that's probably one of the only ones. That's <laughs> the one. Um, oh yeah. man, <laughs> it's, it's a cool old sub. Yeah, Tudors are great. I mean, Tudors are great bang for your buck. It's uh, they actually went off the radar a little in the states, didn't they? They weren't weren't um selling for a few years. Yeah, earlier on, Tudor wasn't wasn't famous at all i mean what really got tutor on the scene if you ask me for my opinion was uh i think their first black bay when they released over new york yes yeah or yep. blue black bay or something like that i could be wrong yep. um, yeah i've had the pleasure of actually working on on a couple of them um before it first came out in the states so it was actually really really nice yeah okay i think the pelagos came out around the same time wasn't it basically so that that with those two models that they really they really took off um yeah i think that's when they really got stepped out of rolex's shadow a little and did their own models which weren't just a sort of a rebadged rolex or or whatever yeah i mean the rolex the rolex uh representative always likes to say you know it's the cooler younger hip version sister of you know rolex or whatever yeah (laughs) so give us a bit of your background i mean i know you 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 you've been in watchmaking since a pretty young age right oh yeah it's 12 years old man shit too long too long yeah. <laughs> give us a little little nutshell uh version and then we'll um we'll see if alex got any questions for you uh i mean in a nutshell it's it's uh i mean at the ripe age, age of 12 i mean my father who was a watchmaker prior essentially just ripped me from my childhood tossed me onto the bench and woke me up at four o'clock every single day you know uh i mean from four o'clock to seven o'clock or eight o'clock until before school starts i'd be on the bench mm-hmm. working on watches seven days a week after i came home from school uh, you know, complete your homework and whatnot, you know, back on the bench again until seven until days a week, seven wow. days a week. It was like that for the most part until I was about like maybe 18 or I started working already at working age, like legal working age over here in New York mm. um, as an apprentice watchmaker. Um, but for the most part, you know, I did that almost every single day, which is why I'm up at like e- easily up at four o'clock. You know, it's, it's just yeah, been such okay. an ingrained habit. Um, wow. And then from there, yeah, from there, I just got my start into watchmaking. Funny enough, uh, I hate, I hated watchmaking. I'm not gonna lie to you. I quit multiple times. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it's not something you like, you know what I mean? When your parents force you into it. Um, but uh, I mean, long story short, I, I've been in watchmaking since of since working age, and from there, uh, I made my way all the way into university system. Uh, I went to school for physical therapy, uh, became a physical therapist paid for my tuition flat out from watchmaking. Uh, I never needed to take a loan, which is great. And then when I became a physical therapist, uh, I mean, the, uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the field, there's a lot of downsides to it. Um, and then what I realized was that the career capital I had in watchmaking earned me 10 times more than I would have as an entry level physical therapist. Um, and then from there, I hopped back into physical, uh, hopped back into watchmaking. And I was, I, I mean, the way I justified it was if I half-assed watchmaking this far and I got this, I, and, I, and I got this far, um, you know, what happens if I actually put my mind to it? And then you apply uh, yourself. The, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then the rest you, is history. Was your family a, a migrant family or something? You have to have that work ethic. I just can't get my head around it. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. They're from the, I mean, they're from the States for a few generations already. I mean, for the most part, the way they see it is um work ethic you know what i mean um the way my father thought about it was long story short it's like you can do whatever you want to do but i'm going to you know give you this watchmaking skills that he that i have you know um and you can do whatever you want with it but as long as i give you a backup skill you know in his eyes that's what a father should do you know what i mean um and then for the most part yeah i quit multiple times but i'm telling you this right now <laughs> Waking up four o'clock, waking up four o'clock at twelve years old every single day, you 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 start to resent the uh, the whole field altogether. It's pretty know? hardcore. No wonder you don't want to wear a watch anymore. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I totally understand it. <laughs> it's uh, it's. I mean, the best way I can explain it is like I, I don't have the romanticism of watchmaking as many other watchmakers do. Um, 
and and most old school immigrants even if you look at a lot of these old school watchmakers uh, most of them are really immigrants um and they don't they don't give a rat's ass i mean can i say ass in, on this podcast i'm sure i can, <laughs> you can say uh, you I, I just need to be polite you know what i mean but like they don't give a rat's ass about you know the romanticism of watchmaking they their philosophy is they get in do the job and get out yeah um and unfortunately the whole uh, marketing side of watchmaking always likes to romanticize everything and you know talks talks about generations and talks about the history of watchmaking you're not just buying a watch you're buying the history of you know this brand <laughs> or whatnot but i mean that hopefully that was a nutshell you know but sorry that's my siri right there. <laughs> i don't know why i don't know why my my phone just went like that's our first wall. siri yeah uh, on the podcast um Brilliant. so how, how did you go from okay you're a watchmaker and then how do you go to having like this huge i guess for a watchmaker it's a huge instagram maybe not you're not up there with the kardashians but for a watchmaker it's a huge and fairly influential instagram account so how, how does that come about and what what are you trying to create or what are you trying to do with that instagram because i can see certain similarities to the message that that we try and get across from your instagram to what we try and get across here so you know funny enough i mean when i first started instagram i didn't really have any specific road or whatnot it was just at that point i was just kind of sick of the industry i don't know the best way to put it um working in the industry the entire time and seeing the the shit that goes on as i'm sure you guys do too um, and then just seeing nobody talk about it. You know what I mean? Like at the time, I, I didn't see anybody on Facebook or Instagram or anything online that uh, nearly relates to watchmaking as I saw it as a watchmaker. And I just said, screw it, you know, and just started posting. Uh, and then from there, I, I don't, I mean, stroke of luck, it, it caught on and everyone, everyone really appreciated those inside posts or whatnot. But I mean, now you see a lot of people on on the social medias who are, who are doing the same thing. And it's like, uh, I mean, yeah, I don't know how much I can, well. you know, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's very, very interesting. Well, when I, when I got, so I got your, your book, Rob said he wouldn't allow you to come on the podcast until I got your book and read your book. So, um, <laughs> I got, I got the book and it is, I don't want it to be like a kind of typical podcast thing where we're like promoting a, a product. Cause I hate all that bullshit, but it is actually a good, book and rob did sell it quite well to me saying it's broken down into different categories um and different sections you can easily go into it it's not something that you can uh, you can lose you can get lost in or it, it is great for i would think people of all levels to kind of be able to dip in and out of it's not even categories it's just little bite-sized chunks which is yeah great. yeah it's, it's it's all over the place but it's good like that really the first thing that kind of struck me from the book that was like yep is when you talk about how watchmakers are treated badly or looked down upon. Oh, yeah, man. Because I, I just, I mean, that was something that, um, again, was a bit of a shock to me because I just thought when I got into the industry, I looked up to watchmakers so much and I thought, wow, everyone in the industry must just think the watchmakers are like the rock stars and, and the gods. And then yeah, you, kinda, yeah. you go into the industry and it's like, you're a cleaner or something or yes, you're the guy that's yes. like unblocking a huge shit out of the toilet and <laughs> it took a while to kind of to get my my head around that so it, that that was the first part of the book that I got to when I was like okay this guy's actually definitely definitely on the same the same page as us so do you want to tell people a bit kind of open people's eyes a little bit to to what it's like to be a watchmaker in the industry Oh man, I mean, there's just uh, there's so much to unpack here. Um, just, just sorry, Anthony. Yeah, yeah, no, so no, 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 yeah, of course. Right now, you work your work is an independent watchmaker, right? Doing multi brands, or and, but you've yes. moved. Have you worked for different brands? What's uh, oh what, my what, gosh, I've worked for I work I've worked for almost every single brand out there, except some of these, like except for you know the common ones. I mean, I've worked for most of the major brands and household brands that everyone knows about. Right. Okay. Um, I've even been consulted. I've been hired as a third-party consultant. Uh, I can't say who, you know, because of the NDAs. But um, I mean, long story short, to explain the the whole second-class citizen concept of watchmaking. <laughs> I mean, um, geez, when I like like you said, when I first started watchmaking, it's you have this idea that as a watchmaker, you're you're a genius for some particular reason. 
um, or that you you know something a lot of people don't. And in and in and in theory, it is true. There's only like two thousand and odd some watchmakers in the USA alone. Um, but for example, I mean, when you hit when you're working in a service center, it's different uh, than if you're a boutique watchmaker. So service center watchmakers never have to deal with the retail or public facing clients or whatnot. The uh, boutique watchmakers, on the other hand, uh, they have to deal with the service advisors or service associates as well as the sales associates. And the large majority of sales associates, when they first start off, they don't know a single thing about watchmaking. For them, it's just a job. So they don't care if you're a watchmaker or not. Um, they just know that if they make a sale, you have to do their watch. You know what I mean? And in their eyes, they they just treat you like dog shit for the most part. I mean, it's always uh, it's always this fake personality where they come to you like, oh hi, how are you doing? How's your day? But you know, they really need a favor from you. You know what I mean? Um, God, that's so good. That's spot on. Yeah. And then like, uh, I mean, it's it's just two faced personality. And then like, you hear all these marketing stuff, and like they praise the watchmaker. It's always a watchmaker on the freaking promo. And uh, in reality, they treat the watchmakers like shit at the boutique level you know what i mean uh if you're a watchmaker and you're listening to this podcast and you're on the service side and you're like saying yo that's not true well that's because you're on the service side you're you're in the <laughs> service center you're not dealing with these uh, see uh, i still think in the, in the service center i always feel if i'm outside of the workshop and i see people who aren't watchmakers there i get a feeling they're like oh my god one of the watchmakers has escaped from their cage <laughs> Like, no, who yes. did we tell? We need to get them back in. They're like roaming around with their white coat on. Like that's the kind of vibe that that I get. But I can, I kind of miss the kind of public, and I'd prefer to have a bit more human interaction. Oh, for sure. I mean, like even uh, for the most part, like I'll, I don't want to name specific names, but there's some schools here in the USA that um, they praise the, the watchmakers a lot, like the, the sparring watchmakers, the student watchmakers in their in their class. You know, they teach them that, you know, you're the next George Daniels or you're the next uh, Rod, <laughs> Roger Smith or whatnot. And, and they hype these guys up so so much. Um, and in theory, I mean, it's, it is very, very, it's a very demanding uh, craft. So if, you, if you're able to get it down, yes, you are smart. Um, but once you come out and you're facing the boutique or retail level, it's a rude awakening for these guys. And a lot of them just quit the field altogether, honestly. Um, and, and that's why you don't hear much about the uh, rates outside of graduation. And, and that's very, very unfortunate. I feel that, yeah, watchmakers, the, I don't know, they're kind of viewed as a necessary evil almost by a lot of the brands. Like we need, we kind of need to have these watchmakers to fix the watches, but ideally they don't really want that part of the business. They prefer just to sell new watches and not have to, to do repairs on them and i think that's why there's a more of a move to swapping out movements rather than actually having proper watchmaking done do you get that that sense as well or um in it, well i i see two sides to the whole movement swapping uh, thing going on at the moment for the industry um one is uh, the lack of watchmakers now, uh, for the most part, in specific markets for these brands or these companies. So, for example, you know, let's just say 2,000 watchmakers in the USA, um, and that's for every single brand. You know, um, for the most part, there's not enough watchmakers to meet the overall demand of the influx of watches coming in for repairs. So, what do, what these brands do instead is they have this productivity or this efficiency level chart for each watchmaker, and assuming let's just say 200 pairs come in let's just let's just say for xyz company 200 pairs come in a day there's no way the watchmakers they have on staff can complete all those so instead um instead of waiting on these watches to come in they do movement swaps so they have a central brand or central company in let's say a different country maybe switzerland or whatnot it's not always switzerland believe it or not um and uh, instead they just focus on servicing all these watches as stock movements so that when we do get these repairs in, they ship out these movements to get swapped out. Uh, for them, it's the efficiency level. You know, um, it, it's interesting to see the demand and interesting to see how they're uh, meeting the demand from the clientele. Um, but at the same time, it's because the consumers are now demanding faster, better, et cetera, et cetera. And these companies are constantly trying to raise their um, 
turnaround time. So it's it's tough. I mean, it's not not all companies do this, but it's, the movement swapping thing is is unfortunately becoming more normal than not. I saw some. Um, I guess there's some connection between that kind of subject, and also you talk about in your book the the quartz crisis and how it maybe wasn't kind of it's not actually the way that they make it out to be and you go into maybe it was just there was a decline in the swiss watch industry anyway do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah i mean the the narrative um interesting enough the narrative is that the quartz crisis you know uh dismantled watchmaking and it's always this like one-sided uh view of it um what people don't talk about is the other side, you know? So funny enough, I'll give you an example. You know, the quartz crisis came about because of quartz watches. Uh, but at the same time, it was a quartz watch that took watchmaking out of the quartz crisis. Uh, you know, like it's interesting enough that during this time, uh, I, I feel that the industry actually did a huge, huge remodeling of its uh, entire, uh, the way it marketed itself. Um, I don't want to say the specific company name, but they also had a huge concept <laughs> in like uh, a, a turning around the concept of um, uh, watchmaking as a necessity into an accessory, which promoted sales. So before that, in the history of watchmaking, you see that watchmaking was known as a um, it was something necessary. It was something you needed to tell the time. Um, it was seen as a technological marvel. It was actually used against science. It was used to prove science against religion. Believe it or not, like in the early early days science uh, uh i mean religion defeated uh, was trying to fight against technology in theory right i'm just like i'm broadly explaining it um watchmaking came about to say look this is what we can achieve with science we can go as far as tracking time uh religion tried to refute it and whatnot so watchmaking at that point in the 1700s was used as a necessity because this is something that is man-made. We can track this. We can track nature now in in in, uh, in a very very broad sense in a macro view, right? Uh, and then as it progressed, and you know, we used it for the railroads. We used it to keep time. We used it for travel. Um, and then, long story short, around a capitalistic society, you know, towards the whole quartz crisis period. The, the, uh, it reemerged in a sense where it, it wasn't used as a necessity, but more so as an accessory to sell for fashion, right? Which is what the quartz crisis did, which is what the quartz watches did. It went from uh, unattainable, high, uh, high-priced mechanical watches, uh, custom-made and whatnot, to look, this is affordable. Anyone can wear it. You can wear it for any occasion. Uh, it's so cheap, et cetera, et cetera. And then during this time, um, the whole quartz crisis was painted as like this huge, I mean, of course there were very, very upsetting, uh, situations because of the quartz crisis. A lot of these companies went out of business and whatnot. Um, a, a, one company bought out almost every single, <laughs> every single <laughs> patent and whatnot. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, but the, at the same token, um, it, it changed the view of society and, in, in, in the way they saw watchmaking. So it went from uh this unattainable thing to everybody can buy this because it's so dirt cheap but there had been a decline in in the kind of mechanical watchmaking and then you're saying in the book you're saying that's kind of that allowed quartz to come in and take over a bit because there was or it helped quartz do that because there was already a decline in mechanical watchmaking and then there was a repositioning of mechanical watchmaking as this luxury kind of yes, unnecessary yes. thing but i guess what i see now is a maybe a second decline where they're trying to make mechanical watches because that's the luxury thing and that's what the that's the thing they're selling to the customers that history and and that kind of stuff but the quality of the movements in a lot of cases has gone down to the same level as the disposable quartz movement uh, I I think it's I, I agree with you. Um, I, I think that some of it, it's tough to say. I think it, what they're what most of these brands now have um, because of the whole R and D department or not, um, they're trying to make everything better, but at the same time cheaper. You know what I mean? Um, it's unfortunate, but that's the way you know people have to make margins and profits and whatnot. So like a lot of these companies, I don't want to name who, you know, but like they get these uh, in house movements and. Uh, 
their in-house I think it's just start naming not... people. And no. name them. I feel no, like I'm less anyway. careful. <laughs> I'm less careful than this. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I can name companies, correct? Yeah, go for it. Okay, okay. So uh, a perfect example. I'll just give you a perfect example that might go against the grain, right? Tudor. Uh, when Tudor first came out, they used edit movements, which is uh, which is not bad, you know. And they use edit move. They used to, you know, edit twenty twenty four or whatnot. Um, and then uh, when they introduced their in house movements afterwards, their in house movements were unfinished. Uh, uh, it was like you almost got more bang for your buck for a edit movement than you did their in house movement. Uh, long story short, agreed. Um, yep. And then um, the problem with that also is that the price point remained the same, if not more, because it was in house movement. And then the way they market it, the way these brands market it is, look, it's in-house, it's it's this, it's that, you know, I get it, you know. But the, the problem is that the, um, think of it like this, uh, the, way I see, the way I see it, and I could be wrong, additive movements have been tried and tested. Yes, there are some issues with additive movements as well. I get it. But at the same time, they're tried and true. You know, they, they've, they've withstand the test of time at this time, at this point. Um, in-house movements, on the other hand, are still relatively new. In, in theory to these brands, right? So let's just say a company comes out the in-house movement a year ago. The reason why we have an upsurge of higher sales warranties is because of these in-house movements. They don't know what's specifically wrong with them, nor do they have, uh, nor do they have the time to spend with them to test out all the design flaws, which yeah. is why like vaccines and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it, yeah. You know, let's take a look at vaccines, a perfect example for people who are not in the watch industry vaccines. You have to go through a specific trial and understand it and to see if there's any defects, which is why vaccines take so long to come out because they have to see everything through. Um, the problem with in-house movements and in the watchmaking industry is that once these companies get a working concept, it's, it's past a couple of tests. They're like, all right, it's good to go. And then instead, what they do is they raise the sales warranty. They increase the sales warranty from two years to now, like eight years or some shit. Um, and they say, look, bring it back in. And to the client, it's 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 a pro. It's a, it's a huge bonus. Yeah. But whereas these watch companies, they're letting the clients do the QC for them. Absolutely. Which, yeah, is yeah. Why, which is why all these watches go back to the manufacturer so that they can see what the defects are because of the consumers. Whereas they didn't test the watches really thoroughly themselves. Um, and, and that's the gripe, you know what I mean? So to see edit movements and then to, to go to in-house movements, um, some of these companies, they try to increase the efficiency because of, the, of course, one, you know, the limitations of edit movements. Um, and then two, uh, because they're manufacturing these products in-house now, they save so much more on cost. There's no longer a fixed cost for these edit movements. There's no longer just fixed cost for the movements in their watches. Instead, what they can do is get these movements, get these materials, and source everything in house, which saves them significantly more money. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know if that if that explained it in a nutshell. No, I think yeah, you didn't you didn't say anything that was untrue. That's for that's for sure. It's all pretty. Yeah, I mean, especially yeah, I mean now, I mean to carry on with the whole Tudor conversation. I mean, there's a reason why Tudor did the deal with Breitling to get their movements um, mm. and then Breitling got their movements from Tudor as well. So from there, it's seen as another value proposition because they're sharing R and D. Um, so, I mean, it, it's something, it's something like you don't hear about this at all. I mean, honestly, who, who's, who's talking about this? You yeah, know what no, I mean? Exactly. It's, uh, that's my gripe with it. So well, I've always preferred in-house. I mean, sorry, sorry, not in-house. I preferred it. I mean, I, that's why I used to collect. That's what attracted me to Tudor in the first place. And so when they started going in-house, I thought, oh, great, here we go again. It's the same as same as everyone else has done. And and here's the problem with in-house. You know, the, the problem with in-house is that you're... The, pro, the great thing about the edit movements, again, is that it's serviceable. You can bring it to an independent watchmaker. These parts are readily available, if not, you know, f- sourceable. Um, the problem with in-house movements is that it becomes a monopoly now. When these companies have these in-house movements, you are, as the consumer or you as the buyer, you are subjected to them only. So let's just say your in-house movement has a problem. You bring it to, you have to bring it back to the manufacturer. If the manufacturer says this is going to cost you $3,000 to fix, you cannot price shop outside of that. Like who is going to have these parts for this in-house movement? Nobody. Now, of course, you can say, I'm going to bring it to an independent watchmaker and they can, the watchmakers can fabricate the parts. Yes, you're 100% correct. Fabricating the parts, however, is time and money and opportunity cost for the watchmaker as well. So now you're looking at a you're looking at an increased price for your service simply because it's an in-house movement. And it removes that flexibility you get with taking it to an independent guy where you can say, 
okay, don't replace this or don't polish it or yeah, like of course, of it course, removes yeah. a lot of those those options for you. You just have to kind of stick to to what they're doing. So in, in your book as well, you talk about kind of how people can get into the industry or getting an apprenticeship. Now, I mean, knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't recommend people to get into the watchmaking industry unless they specifically were going to be doing watch, like actually making watches at the end of it. Because I just think the way servicing's going, like you say, with lots of in-house stuff where it has to be done through the big brands, I think I'm not sure somebody would be too happy to go through the whole process of learning to be a watchmaker and then going to work for one of the big brands unless they just wanted that that salary and were okay doing that kind of work. But I, I don't know that I would recommend it as a, an actual career unless people wanted to go down the independent kind of actual watchmaker route. I, I agree with you. Um, and which is why, I mean, I always started off with saying, you know, if you have to question if you want to be a watchmaker or not, you are already not fit to be a watchmaker. Uh, like exactly. being a watchmaker should be something where you're like, I am hell bent on being a watchmaker. If you if you're even having a, a doubt, an inkling, uh, like an inkling of like maybe saying, should I or should I not? You know, like it's not for you. I guess people don't know though. You don't know until you're in. The, of course, of course, in and the I industry. And I mean, it's painted with this this romantic thing that we were talking about earlier, where oh my God, I'm going to be a watchmaker and I'm going to be doing all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And the actual reality of it, if you're working for one of the big brands, is so far away from that. <laughs> and I think of that's course. why it's good that there's people like us out there who can educate people a bit more to the realities of it so they don't go down that path. Because like you say, how many people, once they're qualified and they go out there into the, the big bad world of watchmaking, how many of them actually <laughs> see it through now? I mean, I I completely agree with you. I think um, I think watchmaking. Interestingly enough, uh, the people who want to get into watchmaking, or or again, you know, if you have a doubt, it's not for you, right? But if some people they have this dying passion to get into it, I, I always recommend them order some cheap clone watch on like a clone edit twenty eight twenty four or something, and try to tinker with it at home. You know, if that's something you find yourself doing, sure. You know, I mean, most watchmakers nowadays they're really just watch repairers. Um, yeah. They just repair movements for the most part. No, no one's really making watches anymore. Um, now, if you're in Switzerland or if you're afforded the luxury of doing so, you, you got to look at the logistics of it, right? So a lot of people listening to your podcast are going to say, well, why can't people just start creating watches instead? <laughs> creating a watch from scratch logistically is a nightmare in terms of finance and in terms of your time, right? Um, it could take someone roughly a year or two years just to create a watch from scratch. Um, and this is being as efficient eight hours a day, five to seven days a week possible, right? The reason why is if you're going to create a watch from scratch, and I'm not, ta- I'm not talking assembly here. I'm not talking you order case, you order dial here, you order movement, then you put it together. Anyone could do that. I'm talking about physically creating a watch from scratch, like what they teach you in school, right? Doing that takes time. You got to get the right finish. You got to get the right measurements. You got to know what, how many hands you want. You got to know the diameter. You, and then you work your way backwards from that. That takes so much time and effort that you can easily, you can easily, I mean, most custom watches go for like $100,000, $200,000 plus because of the time constraints and because of the opportunity costs and whatnot. If you have to create a watch from scratch, you're losing out on a year or two of workload for the most part. Um, and of course, you know, there are people paying for that, you know, especially in, you know, in the Middle Eastern side of the country, uh, of the globe. But watch repairs today, I mean, most watchmakers today are really just watch repairs. I mean, very, very seldom do you hear anyone making a watch anymore. Um, and if someone is inclined to get into the field, there are some pros to going into watchmaking. You know, the analytical ability, the attributes, all the, the tradesmen. Um, and, but most of all, it's the job security. Most people get into watchmaking now because of the, the job security thing. Um, I mean, I know like 90 year olds who are getting into watchmaking now, which is interesting because watchmaking is like I said, very seldom someone's first career choice. Um, it always ends up a second or third or fourth career choice. Um, That's true. And I find that, uh, uh, I mean, if you even ask any of these old school watchmakers, these, uh, immigrant watchmakers, the people who, who are, who've been in the industry for a long, long time, um, 
you, you can see that they actually don't even want to teach their kids or their relatives watchmaking because they want them to do something else, unfortunately. Um, and, and like you can ask, like I've asked many watchmakers. They're such a great resource, those old guys as well. We've got a couple of them of them at work. One guy that's been there, I think like 47 years now. Another one's been oh, wow. there like 30, 38 years. And it's such, I mean, it's for a, a watch enthusiast like myself, it's such a wonderful thing to be able to work with these guys um, and get that experience and just watch them do their do their thing. It's just, it's it's really wonderful. But I was going to ask Rob, actually. Rob, do you think if you were going to, if you were to get, or if you were to consider getting into watchmaking now, do you think you would get into it knowing what you know about the industry the way it is today uh, yeah i think i would but but then I, I'm, I'm mad about watches as well uh, and it's it was i, I figured out it, it took uh, pretty quickly that i was passionate enough about it to to, to enjoy whatever i was doing it, I, th- there was bits of it i didn't like but i was kind of it's a different story um you know it's, it's true what anthony was talking about um there's not much real watch waking but if you do if you did, I was just fortunate to work with Audemars my Piguet. You know, it's, it's not it's not like a it's not like a even a big brand or a big group brand in Switzerland. Even their factories they might be a bit different, and there's lots more production line type manufacturing. But with AP, um, and I, I'm assuming with Patek, GG, I know there's a few of these big where they have you know they have proper old fashioned watchmaking um, training, and and it's 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 an eye opener. It's brilliant. You learn some awesome stuff. Um, so I, I would, but only I don't think. Obviously, I don't. I wouldn't. I don't think I'd do it here in Australia. It's not something that I would be telling my son to go and get into. But yeah, it's a, a different. I guess a different, different viewpoint from over there in Switzerland. And um, when you're surrounded by such a culture of watchmaking as well, it was kind of kind of nice. Um, but then, yeah, sure, it wasn't my first career choice, was it? And I, and um, I didn't even know what watchmaking was when I left school. Really, I guess. You know, funny enough, man. Um, I mean, I, working for these brands and stuff. Like, I've I've had the luxury and pleasure of meeting a lot of these technical directors of uh, of these brands. Um, yeah. And even that, like, they're a wealth of knowledge. So, like, I mean, they're the ones who come up with everything for the most part in in the states specifically in this specific market. Um, and you ask them the same question, like, "Hey, do you teach your kids watchmaking?" You know, like, uh, you'd figure they would since they're at the top of their class. Um, no, for the most part, you ask them, and they're like, "No." Um, I pass on my knowledge to you guys. I pass my knowledge to to, to uh, growing up, like aspiring watchmakers or whatnot. But my kids, they don't want to get into it. And then you see this a lot, and it's unfortunate because a lot of these people. I mean, not, I'm not about forcing anyone. Like, unfortunately, I I was a product of being forced into watchmaking or whatnot. But <laughs> I mean, you figure at some point you start to appreciate it, and you realize like if you spent this much time amassing this amount of knowledge about it you know, um, let's say you unlock this thing, you want to pass that on in some in some fashion. Um, in their eyes, they, the way they're passing this on is to other watchmakers who are coming in to learn from them. Um, and maybe I'm just a little old school, or maybe I have an old school philosophy about it. But something like this, it shouldn't die, it shouldn't end in the family tree. I don't know if that makes any sense. But yeah, and it's cool uh, as well, if they, if they want to pass it on. I mean, it's, it's great to be able to, to pass on that knowledge and to want to transfer have that knowledge transfer, which I love as well. I love, I love, not that I've done much in the way of courses, but I have, you have had to train young guys or whatever. Um, and it's something I love doing, but um, yeah, it seems to be, uh, and it's almost taboo. You don't want to try and you don't want to get, get people to do it. But again, it's because there's a very few passionate people. Uh, if you're really that mad about it, you love it. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be, you'll pass it on automatically, whoever you talk to and around. Yeah, you. exactly. I'm beginning to think maybe I'm not passionate enough now. Maybe I'm no, it's not passion. Yeah, that's what now, like, you guys are like. If you if you love it, you just do it. You don't complain. You just get on. Uh, yeah, it. And I'm like, most, maybe I mean, I'm complaining too much. No, but I think I just think it can be better. Things can always be better, and I want I want more people. I guess the thing, the whole thing about the website and stuff and the podcast is creating or making the watch industry a little bit better, even if it's a tiny little bit. And there's plenty of people that message us and say, we had somebody recently saying, I listened to the podcast and I'm going to, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to become a watchmaker. And that's, oh, wow. that's great. And we've had, a, there's been a few of those, although then the person went on to say that um, the independent thinking show was the best, the best one. So you can't, yeah, well, you can't be that right. Yeah, you can't but, get the um, taste. <laughs> 
But I just think interestingly enough, you mentioned that. Yeah. Ah, you uh, prefer that too, no, interestingly enough, you mentioned that. Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, I've received <laughs> so many messages from people going into Watchmaking Scoop because of uh, the book or the podcast or you know the Instagram, and yeah. and. At this point, I almost feel like I deserve an affiliate commission <laughs> for some of these schools. Yeah. I'll tell you, you have no idea how many like grad, like how many students in this one specific school. I, I don't want to name because uh, I don't want to get you guys like in trouble or whatnot. But like no, you can't each graduating class, what you can't get us in trouble. Well, there's a there's you a school in Pennsylvania. So about, um, yeah, there's a there's a school in PA. Let's just say there's a school in PA, watchmaking school over in PA, the state of PA that have someone who has been messaging me each year in each class entering class and each graduating class to say that it was because of me that they started watchmaking which has been very very interesting to say the least um <laughs> and there's an uh, there's another one over in the middle of america where um it's like you pay for these five-day courses or whatnot and like a lot of people they've seen a huge uptick in like people joining these classes because of it um so i mean as much as I try to paint as much as it looks like I'm painting this image of watchmaking as like this, this huge negative thing, you know, on the flip side, there are many positives to it. Um, but well, I mean, you're still I mean, like in you it. Said, I think you're being more yes. realistic. I don't think it's necessarily negative, but I think being realistic or keeping it real, which I'm always banging on. People about, appreciate that. I think, yeah, yeah. Of course, and of then course, that, yeah. that way when people get into it, they know what they're getting into. They're not thinking it's going to be one way and then it turns out to be, to be another i think that's the the best we can hope for is some kind of reality yeah in the world of watches like being aware of it is is the first key you know like expecting expecting what you're about to go through expecting the the hassles and the the downs um is important because um once you, your expectation of watchmaking like there's no clear expectations who's out there saying what to expect right and then when you are giving expectations it's always this fairy you know this like fantasy like beautiful you know you're a genius type of model whatnot but when you get into the field you realize that you realize quickly that it's nowhere near that you know uh and and for most people they quit at that point because they've never experienced it for them it's like i didn't sign up for this you know and if if we like you guys said you know if you're trying to be real if, if as long as you're real with them then and you show the side that's not shown then people have an idea you know whereas right now it's just one side of the conversation most of these brands are doing these these who's because the field is so small like uh, a watchmaker here might know a watchmaker like halfway across the globe right simply because it's such a small industry uh and the the problem with that is no one's really talking most watchmakers are old school immigrants who who are still um against technology you know what i mean like there's such an old school craft and old school trade that um, they they still don't have a computer or they don't even know how to use their phones or whatnot or that they're used to having flip phones <laughs> and then like you have these brands who are painting one side of the narrative the entire time to these consumers who don't see the other side um, like in other industries you know what i mean in other industries you have people speaking out against this and that and, and there's regulations and then there's a, a huge consumer awareness now but in watchmaking like i you, i don't know about you guys but there are many people who who always say like I never knew watchmaking was even a job I can get into, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. like it, you know, like and it's like they're shocked when they find out they could be a watchmaker as well. And it's like it's because of the lack of spotlight, you know. It's it's the lack of awareness, the lack of people speaking out. Yeah, yeah, true. That's good for people like you though, and and that's why it's easier to differentiate yourself. And that's why Alex has done exactly the same thing in his in his context. I've done it the same in Switzerland for years, and you've done it. You're speaking out and you're talking about stuff. People want to hear about it because no watchmakers talk about it, and the Swiss watchmakers are the worst because they're such conservative, you know, sort of people who who will just do their thing and, and and not talk about it, not communicate about it. If you can a bit, people really appreciate it. I think um, I'm kind of looked know, at, at at work, or, or maybe people like me. Um, it's it's like I'm crazy or something. They're like, "What are you doing tonight? <laughs> oh, I'm doing a podcast. What? Pod yeah, I do like a watch podcast." And what, what's the what? Oh yeah, I've, I run this watch website where people do like reviews on watches. They're like, what? Don't don't you get sick of watches? Like you're working on watches <laughs> all the time. And I'm like, but it's something I'm I'm passionate about. And instead of that being something like, okay, we need a hundred more people that are passionate about it. It's like, yeah, that's weird. Like, are you sure you <laughs> you probably shouldn't be working here? Like, it's 
It's crazy. So funny, fu- funny you mentioned that. I mean, it's uh, uh, funny you mentioned that because most watchmakers, man, like they, most watchmakers got into watchmaking because it was food to put on the table. You know, it, it was a means to an end for them, not because they're passionate about it. So because of that, and now we have schoolings and whatnot, people who are passionate, like you guys, you know, that are entering the field, like they're completely the opposite of what the old school watchmaker was. Like, if you, I'm sure if you ask some of the old exactly. school watchmakers at your job, you know, they're, they're, they're going to tell you, no, I just come here, do my job, go home. They don't, they don't want to think about watches when they're home. Cause for them, it's just, it was for them. It, think of it like as career capital. Like they just came into it. You know, they got the trade, they got the years of experience. doesn't matter what they're passionate about for them. This is how they're going to pay the bills and put food on the table for the family. Um, to, to find someone who's passionate about it, it, it that's even a rarer, breed um so it's it's like you said i I think we need more of that in there but but if you come in late like we did like alex did and like i did you come in late in in life or later later in life but you know a career change or whatever as we said before you have to be really keen to get to that point you have to you know and and stick with it so you automatically got to be more passionate more more outspoken about it and and more wanting to share it because you know that that's why you ended up there it's it's i guess it's the the young guys like you, and if you if you you started from from scratch, and uh, when you're young, it's 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 pretty awesome that you're still out there, you know, talking about it. Basically, and, and funny enough, man, watchmaking the age for watchmaking is so like you can be you can be fifty years old and mm-hmm. you are still considered a young watchmaker. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, like that the average age of a watchmaker is like retirement age. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, like, exactly. I, it's it's ridiculous. So like a lot of these guys, man, like they don't. Uh, a lot of these guys, they they don't care, you know. Like a lot of these guys, they just come in. They, for them, it's like they're about to croak anyway. You know what I mean? Like they, they don't they don't care about it. Um, and and for them, honestly, believe it or not, a lot of these watchmakers they keep doing watchmaking even long past retirement because uh, yes. of the mental aspect of it. Like it helps them be mentally sharp. Um, I mean, yeah. a lot of watchmakers, if they feel like if they retire, then they're gonna have Alzheimer's or whatnot. Mm. Um, yeah, you. I remember true, reading that in the book and. Yeah, it's true. Like the guys I work with, the older guys, they will never retire. And they will, I always say like, they'll just, one day they'll just drop at their bench. And I really believe that. And I'm sure. Oh, I've had two people die on me at the job. Like, (laughs) I think that's the way they want to go. Like, I think that's the way they would actually want to go. They just don't, they don't want to do anything else. They can't think of retirement. I mean, the guy that's been there 47 years, he's still there and he's like, and he's so invaluable to the workshop with all his, his his knowledge and stuff. I mean, there's just no, he doesn't want to go anywhere. No one wants him to go anywhere. It's kind of, it's a very strange, surreal place to work from that point of view, because you just don't really get that yeah. any place else. You don't, you, yeah, you, you don't really, exactly. You don't really see that in other industries. Like I've, I mean, it's very unfortunate, but I, I mean, through my time in other brands like i've had two people die on me on the job yes. like two people just like <laughs> croak out i mean look i don't know about you guys for example when you guys are working on watches your head is very very close to the bench mm. um yeah. and a lot of people after lunch they got the itis you know they they, they, they got yeah. their, their food coma you know like so they when they're done eating they just i mean i don't know about you guys or if you've seen it or not but a lot of watchmakers pretend like they're moving their tweezers but they're really taking oh, a yeah. nap on the desk yeah, yeah i've seen that uh <laughs> what, and, uh, what ends up happening yeah yeah being serious yeah of like uh i mean after you eat lunch and you got a good lunch and a lot of people are get sleepy so when they're working on watches and if it's too boring for them then they fall asleep um mm. and this is the side of watchmaking you'll see you're here or here but um <laughs> and then like so badly and, and the, interestingly enough like because you're working on the as a watchmaker your face is so close to the bench sometimes these people rest their hands right next they rest their head right next to their hands and and then they just like i had i had I know this one watchmaker who instinctually ingrained himself to move his hand a little bit when he's napping to make it look like he's still working on watches um and so when you see stuff like that it's very common for people to like joke other watchmakers to see that and joke around like oh he's sleeping um, what ended up happening one time was as we were leaving for work, there was one watchmaker who was on his bench like that. And we were like, hey, Oops. it's time to go home. And next thing you know, it's like no response. And we found out later that, uh, I mean, his wife worked in the other department. And later on, we found out that he passed on the bench. Wow. Just like that. Yeah. And it's, it's insane. I mean, it's you don't hear about really this, though, you know, like, mm. yeah. 
Essentially. Who, fin- yeah, who finishes okay. their job though? If they're halfway into a service, who 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 finishes it? Are you more? <laughs> are you upset that the guy's dead, or are you more like, God, I can't believe you left this chronograph half done. I'm gonna have to finish this. Like, oh the... my gosh. I mean, I'm sure watchmakers are thinking about that in the back in the back of their heads, like, shit, I gotta finish this guy's watch. But uh, I mean, <laughs> what so are you selfish. Do? You know, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do at that point? Good. That's our one minute clip for Instagram sorted. The old death at the death of the bench that's a that's a good a good snippet <laughs> all right good audio snippet. Yeah. of all excerpts you guys want to choose that one huh <laughs> yeah yeah well we had the the uh ed ed Milan needing a new jacket so we need something that's gonna be a that, controversial that kinda, one everyone's like yeah. you guys are so cold-blooded <laughs> yeah. i think they know that already about us okay instagram recommendations why we've still got you Rob, do you want to go first since you're no, I haven't got one, Alex. This? I'm giving up on these things. I, I, uh, let me look at my list. <laughs> it's not good enough, Rob, because you should. I mean, you're out there dealing with the public. You should be speaking to a new person every day, anyway. So you should people, always have. People know that I'm just a grumpy watchmaker. I, 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 I don't. I, I'm old fashioned. I, you know, I'm too old for this stuff. But yes, I will. Okay, you go first, and I'll try and find one. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go for. Is it Peppy or Peppy now? No, I can't remember. Oh, well done. At least I've got someone, Rob, okay? <laughs> he did a review on the website yesterday um, of a Seiko mem- memory memo master. And it was really, really good. He wrote it from perspective of someone who was alive in 1983, which I, I was as well, but... Um, yeah, he's talking about the the watch like it just come out and how it was the, la- the latest form of technology. And it is, it's Pippi, P-I-P-P-Y. And he just, yeah, really, really, really cool guy. He's part of our crew now. And yeah, he wrote a yeah really good, really, really good, really funny review on the, on the watch on the website. So you should definitely go and check that out as well. P-I-P-P-Y, Pippi. That's my choice. Rob, you got something yet? You need more time? I wanted to just um, talk about a, a bunch of guys of oh, this account called Watchfest. Uh, I don't think I've mentioned it before. Alex will kill me if I already have, but watch.fest. It's just uh, some guys in Sydney in Australia who who have staged a little show last year and they are not able to do it really properly this year because of because of the pandemic and stuff. So, and I was over there in Sydney last year, and I participated in their first their inaugural Watch Fest, basically, oh, um, cool. which was kind of Australia's first little watch show, um, just a, like a one day thing, a one day and a, and a couple of evenings. And um, they've put some more photos on now because we're going to have one this year next month, but it'll be more of a virtual thing. I'm going to organise a little get together in Perth at least, and then they're going to have little get-togethers where they can in other cities and um, like three or four evenings of, of, of Zoom meetings with different brands and stuff. So um, anyway, there'll be more news on of that on watch.fest. So go and follow that account from me. I still can't hear Alex, so I'll just assume that we can get, get your recommendation. What, what, what are you going to go for? What are you going to tell us about? Uh, I recommend uh, Henry. Uh, I believe his name is Henry Lee. Uh, he runs his own watch company over here in New York. Um, the reason why watch I company is, like he makes his own sorry he makes his own brand is it his own brand or he he he, uh, he has it's, well he he does do that as well but he, right now he's like most watchmakers you know they're focused on repairs and whatnot but if he, yeah, yeah. he has had the uh, he has made a watch before with uh, some people who are actually paying him to do it uh, for me I don't know, like I just don't have the time to do that but um, the reason why I recommend him is because he he's helped me out with the book in the beginning as well so it's been invaluable for me. Um, right and since uh since starting that instagram thing like i just have not had the ability to uh i mean i've serviced many watches from people on instagram um and it's been a great business uh thing as well um Mm -hmm. but i just don't have that time anymore and i usually get asked you know recommendations for people here in new york and that's the guy i recommend so right cool cool okay no i'll go i'll go go follow him that's a good one um, I can't, I'm not sure if Alex is sort of half offline here, so I'm going to wrap up anyway. We're getting towards your your cutoff, and it's, it's, a, good, it's a good time, good times any basically. So we've got uh, Henry Lee. It's uh, that was was that with a one Y at the end or two? Two two Ys, I think. Two, yeah, two Ys. Henry L Y Y. Okay, got it all good. We'll wrap it up now. Thanks very very much. That was awesome. Um, it's, it's really nice to talk to someone, especially when I read the book probably 
a couple of years ago, I guess I got I got the book and shared it with a lot of people at at, at work. And yeah, it's been it's been great. I'm assuming there's probably going to be new editions coming out and stuff. Um, with these sort of <laughs> you know, things funny, always... <laughs> funny you mentioned that. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have asked me to update it because I know I'm aware that there are some gr- grammar errors and there are some outdated information on there. Is there stuff um, that you don't agree with anymore, or you've ch- would change your mind? Yeah, you know the funny thing yeah, you is, is because yeah. yeah, each year. I mean, if you're not learning, if you if you, mentally the way I saw it was, I mean, I read the book now. It's like there are some things that would change hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the problem with that is if I update one section, I need to update the whole section. Yeah, sure. Big and job. Then at that point, mm. it's my yeah, my my as well just write a book too, which is yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, which is what hundred more, hundred more tips. <laughs> Someone yeah. joked around and said two hundred plus washing tips. You know, <laughs> so, yeah, no. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Okay, we'll wrap up there. Thank you very much. Thank you for the listeners for listening. And whatever's going to do, it's going to stay on top. Fifth Wrist is by the community for the community. We would love you to join the crew via our group chat on Slack. Email us at contact at fifthwrist.com and join the movement.